You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be always pleasing and acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. thought we had one more verse, so that kind of crept up on me. My question for today, the question of this sermon, is how do people change? This is a question I think about a lot. Being a pastor, I see a whole lot of people, and a lot of times they're asking me to give them advice on how to change, which is a very scary thought, because I don't have that much experience in life. And I'm not all that wise, but I guess they think because I've been a minister for 10 years, I have this well of wisdom where I can give you the answers to all of your life's serious questions. I would prefer to go to Kathy or Craig. They're much more experienced than I am. But seriously, I mean, we all think about this on occasion, right? How do people change? I've been reading this guy, his name is Oliver Berkman. He's a British journalist. He has a book called The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. I really love that title. His more recent book is 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. I find Oliver Berkman to be a companion along the way. Oliver Berkman is not a Christian, though I think that he's another one of those David Brooks types who's on the verge. And I'm just waiting for him to talk to David Zoll over at Mockingbird to be able to jump the hurdle. Maybe Tim Keller can do it for him. But I bring him up because he has this monthly e-newsletter. It's called The Imperfectionist, another title I love. But the title of the blog or the post that he put up is called Actually Doing It. He's talking about the knowing and doing gap. We've all been there, right? In fact, many people who come to me looking for advice, they're not actually looking for advice. They already know the answer to their problem. They just can't get about implementing it. I don't know about you, but whenever I hear people say that, I deeply resonate. I oftentimes, I'm not gonna tell you what it is, could be one of my character defects or one of my addictions or you fill in the blank. I don't know what it is for you. You can think about that now. We're not going to share. But whatever that thing is for you, oftentimes we know the answer. We know what we've got to do, but for whatever reason, we just can't do it. When I lived in New York, I envied the Hasidic Jewish community in Brooklyn because I mean, among other things that I don't do that I should be doing is taking a Sabbath. I envy that community because when everyone in the community is doing it, it's a whole lot easier to do it. Or I used to joke about how if only I could have had a boot camp experience. Maybe maybe like a Christian boot camp experience. I'm a little terrified of what that might be. But yeah, when everyone around you, when the culture is doing it, it's a whole lot easier to do. When it comes to living in a strange land, a foreign culture, you and I, sojourners in a foreign land, it's pretty hard in those areas of our life to transition from knowing 
to doing. So in this little article, again, it's called Actually Doing It. I'm not going to give you the whole article. It's worth checking out. He writes that the human heart is very hard to change. Okay, we already knew that. But when he starts to get enlightening is he asks these two questions. Have you ever tried to change someone's mind about a political issue through rational argument? I have. I've tried to change my dad's mind. You know where it went? Absolutely nowhere. In fact, it probably went the opposite direction than I wanted it to. Or maybe for you parents in the room, have you ever tried to persuade someone to stop loving that person they've fallen in love with? How did that go? Somebody after the nine o'clock came up to me and said, I did that very thing, and my daughter went the opposite way. I was like, yeah, that's that's kind of the point. (laughs) I bring all this up because we read the gospel a long time ago, and if we were to read it closely, we'd realize we need to change. That very first line, if you want to turn to page six, no need to. I hope that you can trust that I'll read it correctly. But in that very first line, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And then skip forward to page nine, the collect of the day. And the collect of the day really is a, somewhat of a commentary on the gospel reading. God has prepared for those who love thee such good things as surpass our understanding. Both this line from the Collect and the line from the Gospel scare me. They scare me because, well, we might focus on, you know, God has wonderful things in store for us, but really what it's saying, the Gospel says, if anyone loves me, my Father will love him. The Collect says, God has awesome things in store for who? Those who love him. And then later on in the Collect, it talks about how we need to love him in all things and above all things. Confession, I do not love God in all things and above all things. In fact, there are times when I don't find myself loving God that much at all. So when I read gospel lessons like this, prayers like this, I get a little terrified because they sound conditional. The love of God seems contingent upon me loving him. Now, I think you've been going to this church long enough to know that I'm using that as a foil. I react this way when I read the collect or when I read this gospel lesson because I am a neurotic person. I am full of anxiety. And something like this does not strike me as good news. As much as it talks about love, all over the place. It's all about love, but if it's conditional, I know I'm in trouble. And why do I know I'm in trouble? Because I wear white vestments to pretend like I'm white as snow, but if you were to look underneath, you'd see the real Ben. You'd see those real addictions and character defects. Fear not, friends. This is a poor reading of both the gospel and the collect. We're going to get to the gospel in a second, but Take a look at the collect with me. The prayer is all about love. The word love, if you were to count up the amount of times, the word love is there. Maybe you were part of InterVarsity Bible studies. What are you supposed to do? Find the word that's most used. And the word that's most used in the collect is the word love. We find it three times. Now, the collect of the day, much like the gospel lesson, is ancient. 
the gospel lessons from 2,000 years ago, but the Catholics from about 1,700 years ago. And in the original language, which was Latin, there are more than one word. There's more than one word for love. In the original version of that prayer, there are multiple uses. So when we read this, when we read these loves, they're doing different things. There's different uses. The first and third appearances of love in this prayer, which are the very conditional uses of the word love, the Latin word used there is this verb diligere. And if you're a Latin scholar, forgive me for that pronunciation, but roll, roll with it. So diligere. The meaning of this word for love is to choose. This involves an act of the will. It's the sacrificial affection you and I might have for a friend. The aspiration, the hope of our prayer is to have this kind of love, this kind of devotion. But we have to pay close attention because that second use of the word for love, in the Latin it's very obvious, it's amore, it's passionate love, it's, it's, it's the kind of love where you're falling in love. The first and third appearances are predicated upon this word for love. And how do we know that? Because this is our ask. What are we saying in this prayer? We're saying pour into our hearts such love, passionate love, white-hot love toward the so that loving thee in all things and above all things we may obtain thy promises. Do you see what's going on there? We're praying to fall in love with God so that we might love him, so that we might esteem him in all things and above all things. This isn't bad news at all. We're praying for the very thing that we're called to have. It's like St. Augustine, right? Command what you will, O Lord, but give what you command. I fell in love with Jesus at a small Episcopal church plant in western Pennsylvania. I was in college. I was in a relationship with the world of my dreams. She slammed the door on me, and all of the lights in the universe went dark for me. That sounds dramatic, but you've all had something like this too. It might not be a relationship, it might be something else. All the lights in the universe go dark. Your affection has been rejected. I would have tried anything for healing at that point. In fact, I did try anything and everything around. And one of the things I knew I had to try was something I wasn't excited about and didn't think would work, but I decided to go back to church to see if I could find healing. And for those of you who are longtime members of this church, it was a student of former Dean Paul Zoll's, and he gave his best Paul Zoll impression. He gave the radical, one-way love of God, and I found myself not only healed, but seized by the power of a new affection. One affection had died, a very hard death. I found myself seized by another. And I don't want to pretend like it was overnight. It took a long time. You know, we, we all know about grief. We all know about all that stuff. But I was seized by a love. My friends, what we Protestants really need to remember is that we're not changed 
first and foremost, to our minds. As much as I wish that were true, I'm such a rational judger on the, you know, Myers-Bridge. I wish it worked that way. And it's not that information isn't unhealthy. We have five Christian education classes because we think it's healthy. But the engine of change is not through our intellect, and it's not through our wills. I mean, think about it. The, the last time you, you lectured someone, you gave someone advice, what do they do? Most oftentimes, well, they either reject it to your face or they, and then they don't take it. At least for me, my walls go up right away. Ashley Knoll was here not that long ago. And Ashley Knoll has this great summation of Thomas Cranmer, the guy who put together the first prayer book. He great summation of his theology of salvation, and it's this. What the heart wants, the mind justifies, the will chooses. Do you hear that? What the heart wants, we are going to justify, and that's what we're going to choose. Unless you think that's just Thomas Cranmer, go read Augustine. Go read Luther. Go read Calvin. We Protestants have, have lost this notion that all of them, and he, like the early church fathers, they're all about, how do you change? It's the affections. It's not through the mind. It's not through exhortation. It's through our loves. But the frustrating thing about this is that there's no blueprint for changing our love. Sure, there are very good things. It's great to hear sermons. It's great to hear Christian ed. It's great to read and do Bible studies. But again, if it's first and if we think it's going to be through Christian information, that's going to change our hearts. It's not. It's through our loves. And this, my friends, is what Berkman gets at toward the end of his newsletter. This is where I think he's on the cusp he just needs to talk to Dave's all over at Mockingbird Ministries, and he might just jump that hurdle. But what he says is essentially this, and I'm going to read it, and then we're going to close. The closest thing I've come to a master key on how change happens is also the most ironic. The most reliable way to cross the knowing-doing gap is to realize you don't actually need to change at all. Doesn't that sound a whole lot like the gospel? What usually stops people crossing the gap is that they make the stakes too high. Somewhere deep within you, you persuade yourself that your basic sense of adequacy or self-worth depends on becoming more focused to finally get around, getting around to the project you've been postponing, getting in shape, or whatever it might be. No wonder it feels so daunting to get stuck in, essential to get absolutely right, and horrifying to contemplate that it might not work out, and therefore it's easier not to bother in the first place or to give up at the first sense of setback. My friends, my love for Christ is in its infancy. I desire maturity, but what Berkman here is saying about Maturity is that it's realizing that we don't have to change. What you and I have that Berkman does not have is we have the promise of Christ that unlike in my foil is unconditional. That's not contingent upon our loving 
God. No, his love is one way above. Salvation is the Lord's. And it's this realization, not just realization in our mind, it's this internalization that just might free us up. Again, I'm a neurotic, anxious person, and it usually just gets in the way of any kind of, all the changes I know that I need to make. But the reason why, and let's get back to the gospel really quick. Let's get back here. Again, we said at the beginning, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love them. But what is that predicated on? If you go down to verse 26, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In fact, the assumption of this text, if you go down just a bit further in verse 28, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going away. I am going to be with the Father. So the assumption is here that they don't love him. They're not rejoicing that he's going away to go with the Father. We need the Holy Spirit to birth this love in us. This is where the college and the, and the gospel are doing the exact same thing. They are making implicit what St. Paul makes explicit in Romans where he says what we need is the love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. This is not something we can manufacture. This isn't something we can think ourselves into. It's not even something we can will ourselves into. You and I are contingent beings who are dependent upon our Lord. So what can we do? What do we do? That's why we pray these collects. It's why we pray at all. You and I, we are dependent. That very love, that sacrificial love that we want, right? Because we don't want to stay in our sin. We've hurt each other. We've hurt ourselves enough with our sins, but we just can't in those areas snap out of it. What do we do? We pray. We come to church. We take communion. We hear the word proclaimed. We pray because we know the one who can make a way out of no way. The one who can break through our character defects. The one who can make sense of our lives at all. My friends, we pray this prayer every single year because the good news is God doesn't pour love into our hearts once, like at that church in western Pennsylvania, and then leave us to our own devices. We pray this prayer because we are needy, and we need this love all the time, and we have a God who pours round after round of 100-proof grace into us so that we might be equipped for heartbreak, for disappointment, and for those spiritually dry seasons. So where are you right now? What do you want to change in your life that you just can't do? Do you come today here with a heartbreak like I had 14 years ago? Are you here with great disappointment and you just can't shake that and you'd rather just quit things than start? Are you here today because you're dry and you remember that experience that you had or those experiences you had, but you are very much in the valley right now and you're beginning to wonder, is the Holy Spirit in me at all? Because I am not loving God 
in all things and above all things. The good news of the gospel, and really what the colic and the gospel are getting at, is that we don't have to fear. We don't have to pretend. We can tell those closest to us, if we trust them. We can go to the Advent house, because those people really believe in prayer a whole lot more than me. We go to prayer, because again, our Lord can make a way out of no way. And ultimately, he will. But we're asking for resurrection now. We don't want to wait. We need patience, that's for sure. But we're asking this God, Almighty God, to break into our heartbreaks, break into our disappointments, break into our dry seasons, and make that way. So let's end with a prayer. Pour into our hearts such love toward thee, O God, that we, loving thee in all things, and above all things, may obtain thy promises, which exceed all that we can desire. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.